This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. On this episode, we have new castles, new capitals, and renewed, though tentative as always, peace. But first, your time is your greatest currency. Make no mistake about that. And this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on who you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Those spans do exist between some episodes along the way. Please know that I'm always working and researching and writing to produce quality content for us all. Yes, me included. You know, it's one of Kurt Vonnegut's eight rules of writing, in fact. Choose a topic you enjoy. So, as far as I'm concerned, I'm along for the same ride you are. You're just seeing the amalgamation of my research is all. Now, please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. Podcasts still in its infancy as a truly powerful medium is wholly dependent on the listener to help market itself and spread its name widely. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving five-star reviews, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. And in advance, once again, as always, I am so super appreciative of everybody listening to this right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So let's get to the learning. Today's episode, episode 97, is entitled, Always on the Move. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, it's been a little while, so let's reset the scene here. Throughout that little mini-series of Everybody Hates Will, we've discussed the Revolt of the Earls, where in 1075, a failed rebellion of two major Norman earls in England seemingly laid the groundwork for a larger continental conspiracy against King William I. We've also taken a deeper look into the relationship between the English and their Norman overlords with regard to land ownership, culminating in Archbishop Lanfranc putting the king's half-brother, Bishop Odo of Bayeux, in a checkmate, forcing the Norman bishop to return much of the lands, the church lands, I should say, return much of the church lands he'd stolen outright or through coercion. And weaved throughout these threads, as well as the episodes on Patreon setting up a deeper context of the whole conquest, we've seen the formation of what amounted to the downfall of father and son. Everybody certainly did hate William, it seems, for pretty much his entire life. He was born a bastard, survived countless assassination attempts, fought kings and counts and dukes across France, and defeated a king and untold numbers of rebellions in England, all in order to maintain his new crown and his existing standard as duke in France. And with the next generation of Norman men assuming the age and titles of knighthood, he was up against a serious, and I mean serious, generational conflict brewing. What cut the deepest, no doubt, was that this generational divide was led by his own son, 
Robert Kurthose. But Robert Kurthose was merely the figurehead for a much larger conspiracy against William. After the failed siege at Rouen, Robert and his sycophants, as Orderic Vitalis affectionately called Robert's friends, well, they rode straight away to Flanders to visit Robert's maternal uncle, Count Robert the Frisian. Obviously, refreshed with a renewed purpose, Robert then rode toward eastern Normandy and raided quite deeply those marches that bordered Normandy and Beauvaisis. Now, King Philip I and William joined forces and rode Robert out of town. But Robert soon ended up in King Philip's court. And by early 1078, King Philip I of France had cozied up to young Robert, now around 24 years old, and he placed him just outside of William's reach, across Normandy's eastern border, at the castle at Giberoy. Now, through all this, Queen Matilda... (laughs) Queen Matilda, though long known to have held Robert closest out of her sons, seemed to have escaped implication of aiding her son in his initial revolt against William. Though their relationship was beginning to sour a bit, admittedly, as we discussed in Patreon episode 12, she was still the loyal and dutiful and trustworthy wife she had always been for William. The perfect match. However, the same couldn't be said for William Rufus or even young Henry, for that matter. Remember, it was William Rufus and Henry who really popped the lid off of Robert's long, festering anger toward his father. Respected historian Frank Barlow suggested that the boy still had a choice to make in 1078. In his book, William Rufus, Barlow writes, quote, William Jr. had an option in 1077 to 1078. He could have taken Henry to join Robert. End quote. Now, according to Orderic Vitalis, the boys stayed with their father, but this is the first in a string when Henry, the last son of Williams, who really had no business being involved in these games, so far down the, the air ladder, right, would be twisted. Henry would be twisted and pulled here and there. While holed up in Gerberoy, King Philip sent wave after wave of French knights and soldiers to aid Robert Curthose in his rebellion against William. As Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, puts it, quote-unquote, taking full advantage of his enemy's discomfort. Now, his enemy is referring to William, that is, King Philip I and William were now enemies, which is kind of an off-and-on thing for William. Now check this out. Outside of Gerberoy in January of 1079, Robert led a stout force of Norman and French knights against Norman knights, led by none other than William the Conqueror. Most of them looked alike, as these were the days, as Barlow reminds us, quote-unquote, before personal armor bearings and knights could not easily be distinguished on the battlefield unless they had announced in advance by what signs they could be identified. That is to say, there will come a time in the coming century or less that knights and higher nobility will start wearing certain insignia that will distinguish them on the battlefield. But these were not necessarily those days, not quite yet. And William and Robert, more or less, well, they weren't too different at all from those knights around them, at least in looks. But father and son, having trained together for years and possibly even fought together, and most definitely fought against each other, tete-a-tete, 
these guys would definitely know each other on the battlefield. So it was Robert all damn day on that day in January of 1079 outside Gerberoy. He ordered his men to push, and they pushed. Robert's forces held the field as Barlow writes, quote, killing and capturing some of the royal forces, end quote. But something else happened that might define the next several years for William and Robert. William, it seems, was unhorsed during the battle, a knight standing over him while he lay on his back in the dirt and mud. That knight, by every record that records the event, that knight was Robert Curthose. The embattled, rebellious, and bullied son had bested the man who might very well have held a central role in the boy's inner struggle and pain. Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, wrote, quote, According to John of Worcester, William escaped only because Robert recognized his voice and, giving up his own horse, commanded his father to ride away, end quote. Robert Curthose was now a problem. What's more, William Rufus, fighting on his father's side, mind you, was injured in the battle. Well, it was time for Matilda now to strong-arm her way into this situation. Morris writes, quote, William was evidently very sore, his humiliation compounded by the discovery that Matilda, feeling a mother's affection for her son had been secretly supporting Robert by sending him large sums of silver and gold, end quote. Now that line about feeling a mother's affection for her son is actually, Morris admits, was quoted directly from Orderic Vitalis. Before anyone knew it, a year had passed, and word had spread far and wide of William's defeat and his humiliation at the hands of his own son. So it's now April 12th, 1080, Easter, the time for reconciliation. Rouen, William Rufus had healed, but William the Conqueror was still licking his wounds because his pride, and he was a very prideful man, his pride took a massive hit after Gerberoy. Queen Matilda made a call for all hands on deck here. At this Easter court, most Norman nobility and Norman clergy showed up like usual. But we also see both William Rufus and Robert Curthose. We don't know if this was the first face-to-face meeting between William and Robert Curthose since Gerberoy, but we can only assume that it was. A man named Simon of Crepy was also present at this meeting, and it seems before he headed to Italy to meet with the Normans there, led by Robert Giscard, remember, He seemed to have been quite a serious force behind the main purpose of this court, this Simon of Crepy. Other than who was there, we don't know much about the business that was discussed, but based on one specific letter from Pope Gregory VII to Robert Curthose on May 10th, again, just, what, a month or less after this, this Easter court, we learn that reconciliation was definitely in the air that Easter. Much of Robert's behavior between 1077 to 1079 was simply chalked up to quote-unquote bad advice in the letter, it said. Yeah, Robert was swayed to do what he did because those around him gave him bad advice. 
Seems to me like a bit of whitewashing to make the ducal slash royal family look a little better. Because let's be honest, this was not a good look for William and the folks at the top of both the Norman and English nobility. Well, what was left of the English nobility, I should say. But what came out of this Easter court of 1080, above all, was that, as Barlow writes, quote, William and the barons confirmed Robert's status as heir to Normandy, end quote. However, our historian Barlow states that England, the very word or even mention of the kingdom itself, England wasn't written once in all the records surrounding this 1080 Eastern meeting. Now, sticking to the records, because, I mean, <laughs> that's all we can do a thousand years later. As far as anyone knows, the omission of England from the records indicates that Robert was merely reinstated as William's heir to the Duchy of Normandy. With the exception of England's future, Barlow states, quote-unquote, everything points to a reconciliation of the status quo. Now, that's very, very important. It's going to really come to a head in the next few years, by the way. Now, just a few months later, Robert would have a chance to once again prove to Dad that he's worthy of the old man's respect. We next see both men in England. William's first visit to his kingdom since the beheading of Earl Waltheof nearly four years earlier. Yeah, he hadn't been to England in four years. And by early summer, we see Robert way up north in England to sort things out. It seems England's northern borderlands were once again being harassed by the Scottish king, King Malcolm III, or Malcolm Canmore, for about six months to that point. Now, what's more is that Northumbria's de facto earl in the wake of Waltheof's beheading was Bishop Walker of Durham, and Bishop Walker was murdered in May of 1080. This was more than a skirmish, though, if we squint just so. In fact, immediate reaction was required of William, and while he was heading across the channel, he had sent word ahead of him for his half-brother, Bishop Odo of Bayou, to head north and be the king's representative in quelling things in the area. It had been a decade since its harrying, and Northumbria was still in tatters, but people still hated their Norman overlords. <laughs> Enter Odo of Bayou. <laughs> Not exactly the most level-headed of William's men, no question. Morris writes, quote, According to Simeon of Durham, Odo killed, maimed, and extorted money from the guilty and innocent alike before helping himself to some of the cathedral's treasures, including an ornate pastoral staff, end quote. So the Northumbrians were put down once again, and Odo headed back south. But there was still that problem with those Scottish raids. At the helm of an almost purely English army, Robert Curthose traveled the north with a great amount of apprehension, actually. This was still a very dangerous region for anyone loyal to those foreign pony boys. And here was the firstborn heir to the duchy on horseback at the front. We already discussed the Abernethy submission, but suffice it to say that as soon as Robert's banners were seen in Scotland, King Malcolm III asked to meet. Huh. A peace agreement negotiated in Falkirk near Edinburgh was once again agreed to. Malcolm 
once again sent hostages. Remember, his stepson was already being raised in William's court. And, once again, Malcolm promised to keep his kingdom in a state of submission to the English crown. Well, at least that's the English perspective. Now, there was something interesting to come of this besides the centuries-long legal disputes behind these, you know, 11th century treaties between Scotland and England. Some records indicate that Robert Curthose was the godfather of Malcolm and Margaret's daughter. For those who know a bit of 12th century English history, you'll recognize her name, Edith Matilda. This was the future bride of King Henry I, the very, at this point, very young Henry. You know, the one who, with his brother William Rufus, had dumped, we'll just say, a bedpan over uh, Robert Curthose's head, right? So this is, this is years into the future, but seems Robert Curthose came out of it as the godfather of King Henry I's future wife. And their daughter would seek legitimacy. Barlow points out that if that was true, if there was a connection that would help legitimize Edith Matilda's daughter's claims later, well, this was most likely the time when that connection was penned. All in all, this campaign by Robert Curthose into Scotland was pretty much bloodless and highly successful. It was the best possible outcome for William, despite Bishop Odo's murderous rampage he had just done. Now, there's a side note here that I want to make sure we get to. While Robert Curthose victoriously rode back to England from Falkirk, a distance of around 140 miles as the crow flies, he stopped by a tiny village on the River Tyne in England's far northeast. Today, it's a rather large, bustling, industrial city, making it somewhat difficult transition into the more technological 21st century, very much like my own hometown of Indianapolis, which is why when, years and years ago, when English soccer came to American television on the regular, I was drawn to this city and became a fan of its squad. I mean, come on, seriously, you got... Tim Kroll, Joey Barton, Fabrizio Colaccini, Hatem Benarfa, Jonas Gutierrez, Czech Chiote, and Sammy and Shola Amiobi. The good old days, I'm telling you. I know I'm making a lot of English people pretty upset right now, maybe, but hopefully there's a few Geordies out there. Uh, but man, those were the days. Anyway, a thousand years ago, this village was visited by the son of William the Conqueror. While there, Robert built a castle. It's keep not even a, what, a tenth of a mile from the banks of the River Tyne. Thus, the village became known in the summer of 1080 due to this new castle that Robert Curthose had built as Newcastle-upon-Tyne. There you go. Oh, that keep? It's said to have been built upon the very spot that Bishop Walker was killed that same May of 1080 an exclamation point, if there ever was one, on Norman superiority in the kingdom to any lingering rebels and haters in that region. And being so accessible to the North Sea, just mere miles from the mouth of the Tyne, mind you, it would serve as a very advantageous place from which to insert royal dominance in the centuries to come. So there you go, the founding of Newcastle. Who knew? By the end of 1080, with the North once again quelled and a new castle, very much a Norman military presence quite deep into the farthest, farthest reaches of the North at that point. And Robert, having earned his father's respect, we see King William 
and his three sons, Robert, William Rufus, and Henry, preparing for a new mission. This one, though, had them traveling out west, curiously. But first, because if you remember, King Edward II used to do the same almost like every year of his 20-year reign. We see William gathering everyone in Gloucester for the Christmas holidays. Robert, Odo, William Rufus, Henry, Matilda, they all came. But no one for a second thought that William was, you know, was back on the island looking for holiday poppers or anything. The Forest of Dean was nearby, and as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles tells us, quote-unquote, he loved the stags as much as if he were their father. Nothing's changed for William. The man loved to hunt. Morris wrote, quote, Such indeed was William's love of hunting that he imported the very concept of the forest into England. The word occurs for the first time in an English context in the Doomsday Book, end quote. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to extend this a bit into the realm of tangent, as Morris enlightened me once again. He tends to do this. He's pretty good at that. He continues, quote, We tend to think of forests as heavily wooded areas, but originally the term could be applied to land of any sort. It probably derived from the Latin word forests, meaning outside. For the forest's defining aspect was, was that it was a jurisdiction apart, an expanse of land reserved for the king's own recreation with its own rigorously enforced law, end quote. Now, I can imagine that many of our listeners from Ye old Isles are not too surprised by that, but the idea of royal forests can only at best tangentially be connected to our American idea of state and national forests and parks. But the difference between the two lie between who is able to use them. It's silly to tell an American they can't go to a forest paid for by their own taxes, which is, in a manner of speaking, exactly what royal forests are paid for by. Either way, William was out hunting in the Forest of Dean during the Christmas holidays, and as mentioned, Gloucester's geographic position within the kingdom made it ideal for what came next. Mark Morse draws in reasons for William's later appreciation for his one-time enemy, Harold Godwinson. Now, remember that guy? That was like 20 episodes ago. When Harold was still Earl of Wessex, he'd done some things out west, if you remember, that made William's job actually way easier. Morris writes, quote, Although the conqueror may not have cared to acknowledge it, Harold's success in toppling the all-powerful Griffith Apthlewellyn in 1063 had returned Wales to its usual state of disarray, with multiple rulers vying against each other for supremacy. By the time the Normans arrived in the region soon after 1066, much of their work had already been done for them. End quote. Well, that and William Fitzosborne's work out there early on in the conquest and the slew of, ca I mean, a slew of castles, there's so many of them out there, built along and in spitting distance from the dike, certainly gave the proper show of force to keep the Welsh in any unified sense at bay. Now remember, there were more castles built out on, along the west borders, the marchlands with Wales, than anywhere else at the outset of the conquest. That's not on accident. Another reason why the Welsh weren't the threat, or at the very least, a nuisance, 
like Scotland had been, was the fact that William learned very quickly to separate the earldom of Mercia into a few different ones. One of those was a primary conspirator in the revolt of the earls. See, the earldoms of Shrewsbury, Chestershire, and Herefordshire were a way to keep one main earl to continue to pull support from the Welsh, right? As William knew had not only happened on his watch, but by earlier earls under the English kings. For more details on William's actions in Wales in the early 1080s, I ask you to refer to Patreon episode 14. But for our purposes here, William marches through Wales after hearing news of quite a bit of ruckus coming out of the West. Now at the time, Wales was still, as I said, reeling a bit from the death of King Griffith at Pluellen of Wales years earlier. Wales instantly fell into a disarray. Local leaders rose again to reinstate themselves into the old kingdoms, those kingdoms such as De Highbirth, for instance. Over the last decade or more, it's been a bit of a hot mess. But by early 1081, William was aware of things coming to a head across the dike, and he wanted to keep a very close eye on the situation. How close? Well, (laughs) William marched a pretty large army into Wales after he heard of a nasty, brutal battle at Minnithcairn on the opposite side of Wales of where he found himself in Gloucester. Why? Well, for reasons on on that same Patreon episode 14, William was actually overlord of Caradog Apth Gruffith. So when after the battle of Minnithcairn, Caradog was defeated, that means that Wales was, well, it wasn't Williams in any way, shape or form. And we know how William feels when he isn't in control of what's happening around him. So William moves through South Wales with his army and he makes his way out west to St. David's. St. David's? Wait, wait, a monastery? I, but he's got an army. Okay, all right, so let's, let's look into this. According to Orderic Vitalis, well, William was just itching for a pilgrimage, right? Nothing else. Of course, nothing else. Why would you think otherwise? This is just an innocent child of God on a pilgrimage with a massive army. Even the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles admits, quote-unquote, the king led levies into Wales, right? This is, a, this is an army, okay? This was a war machine, no question. Morris supports this, writing, quote, This was a demonstration of military might, pure and simple, intended to put Rhys in his place and reduce him to client status, end quote. Rhys, by the way, was the victor at the Battle of Minnithcairn. Now, keep in mind that St. David's Cathedral is the farthest point west in Wales. And it's just the kick of a rock south of Minneth Cairn, where that big battle took place. Now, it's, it's interesting enough that William rode an entire army way out to the other side of Wales, first time going into Wales, by the way, right after his, his servant, basically, this Caradog, uh, Apth Griffith was defeated, but then he completely has his chroniclers whitewash it as a simple pilgrimage. It's just very, very curious timing is all. But on his way back, 
This is where it gets interesting, I think. On his way back, William stopped by and he founded a new city. Little fishing village was already there, but founded a new city and improved upon the works of his bestie, William Fitzosborne, years earlier. So first, William founded the modern capital of Wales, the city of Cardiff, on his pilgrimage across southern Wales in 1081. The other, at a smaller town called Chepstow, along the River Wye, which is today just up the road from Bristol and Bath. That was established by William Fitzosborne more than a decade earlier, and William decided to use Chepstow as his first real Norman seat of power inside Wales. Cardiff would, would come as well. Like Newcastle, the castle built in Chepstow showed that Norman ambitions on the island hardly stuck to the confines of England. Wales, Scotland, they needed to be on watch. The Normans had arrived on the island with England on their minds, but you'd be a fool to think these mainlanders were ever willing to settle with what's just in front of them. Like the stallions that made such a formidable foe on the battlefield, Normans were always on the move. Always. Until next time.